1: think about when you hear the word Supreme Court, salacious news coverage of the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, gushing profiles of feminist icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg, high school, and vaguely recalled lectures about cases the details of which you dutifully read or didn't and flunked the test on, like McCulloch versus Maryland or Marbury, Marbury v. Madison, or in this age of the coronavirus and the sudden need to determine as a citizen what the respective powers of governors and presidents are in times of crisis— Are you suddenly aware that a grasp of seemingly arcane terms like enumerated powers is imperative for each and every one of us and not just constitutional scholars? Are you suddenly out of a job and thinking now of attending law school and are not sure you could master the material? Have you suddenly found yourself homeschooling a bright, late adolescent in need of a text and an associated online resource about the key legal legal cases that have determined our destiny as a nation and affect virtually every aspect of our individual lives? Do you simply want a solid but approachable book that provides vignettes of current crucial moments of American legal, social, and political history? Want to know under what pretext a local government can seize your house? Have I got the book, An Online Study Guide for You, An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know, by Josh Blackman and Randy E. Barnett, published in 2019. Randy Barnett is one of the leading constitutional scholars of our time. He and his co-author, Blackman, have boiled down to a handy hundred what they believe are the cases that most matter, some of which are notorious, or what they term anti-canonical. Let's see if you agree with their picks. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Randy E. Barnett, who is the co-author, along with Josh Blackman, of the 2019 book An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. Randy, given the extraordinary situation we are in politically and economically because of the coronavirus crisis, crisis, and because so much of your book addresses not only legal but political and economic questions and basic questions of governance of the American policy polity at the state and federal level, could you tell us what sections of your book and which court cases we as readers might want to focus on in order to thrash out who has authority in which realms? say, governors versus the president and Congress versus the executive. Are there any notable constitutional cases that, say, Trump supporters could point to to justify his actions?
2: Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Hope. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about my book. Um, And I just want to emphasize before we get started what you said in your introduction, and that is that this is not just a book. It is a book with a video series uh, that is attached to it. Um, and it's a, it is about the hundred Supreme Court cases everyone should know, but there are 63 five to 15 minute videos that if you buy the book, uh, which Amazon is now selling for less than ten dollars, uh, you get a- a access code on the inside cover. Um, and a- that access code allows you to access on any medium you have, uh, any device you have, the 63 videos that Josh Blackman and I spent two years and one hundred thousand dollars to produce these are, professionally produced videos, not just talking head videos. Uh, Josh does half I do half. but we have lots of pictures, graphics to illustrate the concepts, maps, um, and lots of recordings, audio recordings from oral arguments in the Supreme Court, and even the judges the justices announcing their own opinions, reading their own opinions from the bench which they do in modern times um, and these get recorded in modern times. And so this um, is this is a, this is a, a complete course. Um, and that's a design for law students before they go to class for undergraduates, um, uh, as well as for high school students. And in particular homeschool students, the book and the videos make a wonderful homeschool course. And I can tell you, uh, and it doesn't, you don't have to be a student. You could be just a layman after you've read this book and watched the videos, you will know more about constitutional law, the actual constitutional law that the Supreme court does than most lawyers do. And most graduates of law schools do.
1: That is impressive, and I can attest. I've read the book and I've watched the videos, and I recommend both because I feel so much more empowered as a citizen now having read the book. And I heartily recommend both the video and the and the book as well. Um, thank you for that to to make clear that it's a, a really fully fully multifaceted, fully multimedia experience. Uh, staying on the topic of the current coronavirus cor- coronavirus crisis situation. Are there cases in your book that might be particular interest to those concerned about the loss of civil civil liberties at this time?
2: Um, Actually, um, the part that our book, uh, our book doesn't really talk that much about what is really of central importance here, but that's because our book is geared to what's taught in law schools and law schools classes don't talk about what's of central importance here. Um, uh, With the modern approach, and we do teach the traditional approach versus the modern approach, the modern approach is to place all your emphasis, all our emphasis on constitutional rights. And if you don't have uh, an enumerated constitutional right, like a right of freedom of speech, press, assembly, free exercise of religion, if you don't have an enumerated constitutional right, then you probably are not going to get much relief in court under the modern approach. But that was not the traditional approach. The traditional approach that preceded the modern approach, and our book is historical, so we give you the background that leads up to the modern approach so you understand it. The traditional approach was not to focus on rights, but to focus on the scope of government powers. And that is different if you're talking about the federal government than if you're talking about the state government. If you're talking about the federal government, it's relatively easy because you're talking about one of the powers that's enumerated in the text of the Constitution, like, for example the power to regulate commerce with among the several states, or the power to raise and support armies, the power to establish a post office or post roads. there's a list of them. so you know what they are. What would be of in, what, what's, what is implicated by the coronavirus uh, pandemic is the, is the regulation of interstate commerce, but we'll come back to that. At the state level, there are no enumerated powers listed in the Constitution. State powers are taken for granted, they're assumed. Um, The the assumption is is reflected in a number of places, including the 10th Amendment, which talks about the reserve powers of the states. What are the reserve powers of the states? Well, this is what was called, has been called since the founding, the police power of the states or the police. At the founding, it was referred to as the police of the states. And then soon thereafter, started being called the police power of the states. It's the police power that states are exercising in order to address the problems raised by the pandemic. But you don't study the police power in law school now. Because that's not the way the courts have gone. It used to be, let me just re- restate this, it used to be that what lawyers needed to know is what is the scope of the police power. And if they knew the scope of the police power, they'd know what the state could do without violating people's rights. Nowadays, they gave up doing, they gave up doing that because they said, oh, that's too hard. We don't know how to define it. Nowadays, states can do pretty much whatever they want, except if they violate a right And then the only rights that get protected are not all of our rights, but the rights that are enumerated in the Constitution, like press, uh, freedom of speech, press and assembly. So let me give you an example of rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution and therefore do not get special protection. The right to raise your children as you see fit. That's not enumerated in the Constitution. That's not an enumerated right. How about the right to go get a haircut? The right to go, uh, the right to go to the grocery store, even uh, the, uh, the right to go to a drugstore, uh, the right to go to a restaurant, the right to operate a restaurant, none of these rights, none of these liberties, these are all liberties we have, but they're none of the liberties that get special protection. So that's the problem we have. If you try to analyze what states are doing under, under, uh, current law, you have to try to shoehorn this underneath a, um, a special enumerated right, which you're not going to be able to shoehorn. That's why the what the the cases you that you get a lot get a lot of attention in the press are, for example, restrictions on the free exercise of religion. So drive in church, drive in services are not okay. Well, why is that getting attention? Well, apart from the fact that it's noteworthy that's happening, why is that getting attention in the courts? Well, because there's enumerated right to free exercise of religion. That's why. But if you're talking about a right to go get a haircut, there is no such right, and therefore you're not going to get that protected. I have one further uh, point to make about this, uh, or you can ask me another question. It's up to you.
1: No, no, please, please feel free to make any point you want.
2: All right. So I will modify. I'm going to qualify what I just said a little bit, uh, and that is, I'm going to explain to you a doctrine that we do explain in our in our in our book, 100 Supreme Court Cases, and that's the doctrine of rational basis scrutiny. So when I said That unless you have an enumerated right, you don't get any protection. That is generally true as a matter of practice, but it's not technically true. And we teach this in the book. Technically, if one of your liberties, the liberty to stop you from getting a haircut, the liberty to stop you from going to the store, uh, the liberty to stop you from going to the beach, uh, if one of those liberties is restricted, an unenumerated liberty, then you're supposed to get what's called rational basis review. And that means that the government measure must be rationally related to a legitimate state end. There must be a rational relationship between the means, whatever they're doing to you, and they're, they're telling you you can't do this, and the end that they're seeking to solve. Well, in the case of a pandemic, the end is clear. It's health and safety, which is one of the core functions of the police power of states. Health and safety is in. That's what states are there for, is to protect health and safety. But that still leaves the relationship between the means they adopted in the end, and that must be a rational one. Now, here's the key. It used to be that that meant something, that there was a real meaningful inquiry into what is the rational relationship. And you would turn to the government and say, well, why are you doing this? What is your reason for, do- why did you do this? What was, the, what was the evidence that you had to support you taking this step? how did it, was it supposed to work? Then government would have to explain itself. But ever since 1955, in the case of Williamson Vele Optical, which is one of the 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know, the Supreme Court ca- adopted some, the, something that we call the conceivable basis test. They don't call it that. They still call it rational basis. But it really is the conceivable basis test now. Because to satisfy the test, all the states have to show Is that there was a conceivable reason why they might have done it, not the real reason they actually did it. And in fact, even if the state doesn't come up with a reason, judges are supposed to make one up for the state. That's how deferential this standard is. And if you apply the conceivable basis test, then you functionally get no protection because the government can always conceive of a possible reason why they might have done it, even if it's not the real reason they did it. So that's the that's that's the tricky part and that's the that is something we do cover um, in 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know
1: well Randy you use the term deferential I think that would be very helpful if you could explain that for for general readers what the term deferential means
2: absolutely I'm happy to most of the debate over modern constitutional law is about the degree of deference or or well, I'll say what deference is in a moment. Let me just state this proposition. The degree of deference that the judiciary or judges are going to give either state legislatures or state governors or Congress in the case of the federal government, right? So what does deference mean? Deference means we give them, judges give them the benefit of the doubt. When when an individual citizen, one of we, the people, we're the, we're the sovereigns of this country. When we go into court and we challenge a restriction on our liberty by our servants in government. Do we get the benefit of the doubt, or do our servants in government get the benefit of the doubt? Well, under this idea of deference, um, the servants get the benefit of the doubt. Not we, the people, the masters, but the servants get the benefit of the doubt. And then the question is, how big a benefit of the doubt do they get? Do they get a benefit of the doubt that we're, as individual citizens, are entitled to rebut with evidence, saying, okay, sure, they get the benefit of the doubt, but hey, judge, look at this. Look at the evidence of how there's a lack of fit. Look at the evidence of the bad motives that the legislature might have had to help out some people and hurt other people. Do we get to say that in court? Or does that deference become essentially absolute? So no matter what we say, they're going to rule for the government. That's what most of the debate of modern constitutional law is about. How much deference in any given case will judges give the legislature? So if it's an enumerated right, like the right of freedom of speech, press, or assembly, courts are not that deferential. They're not as deferential as if it is an unenumerated liberty, in which case they're so deferential that there's no real practical way for a citizen to rebut that deference. So that's the key thing. I will say this in in the interest of uh, maybe touting another book of mine, my previous book called Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People, is all about Judicial role. What is the role of judges in a constitutional republic? And that means how much deference should judges really be giving uh, to legislatures? That's where I address that at great length in a a book that's a a trade book intended for the general public. But we do talk about that in our our case, because really, to be a practicing constitutional lawyer, it's all about how much deference uh, is the court going to give to the other branches of government and what can I do as a lawyer to shift that burden so that uh, it act, it's something as a, a lawyer challenging a, a statute or a, or an executive branch order, we might actually win. We might actually be able to overcome that deference. Does that make sense?
1: That's very helpful. And I, I'd like to follow up, if you don't mind, because in, it must be a fascinating time to to have that expertise in the area of deference, because you mentioned enumerated rights in the constitution such as freedom of assembly and also freedom of religion. And I'd like to get to the, the case of New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio recently threatened to close permanently houses of worships that do not obey his public health edicts. And how does deference play a role in that? But given that this is an emergency and yet he is impairing he's impugning basically the right even the right of people to assemble, say for a Jewish rabbi's a notable Jewish rabbi's funeral. On the int- in the interest of public health, and what wh- where does this where, do, where does a mayor's action fall in in that? And given that that's a constitutional right versus versus a, a, a public health concern,
2: right? Well, it's a really good question. Um, there's two things I want to say about this. First of all, um, even though the right of assembly is actu- is in the constitution, um, uh, it's actually um, uh not protected all that well um in fact what's happened is the right of assembly which is an enumerated right which is a right to get together or to to assemble with other people is is called by the supreme court the freedom of association and then that freedom of association is is actually quite limited um i don't think that really what is was what matters here what matters here it's it's your question about deference um and when you talk about deference um um I have to make one other distinction between how things used to be and how they are now, how people think they are now. So what people think is they think well if I have a right, a constitutional right to freedom of speech, press or assembly or free exercise of religion, then that means government can't do anything to me when I'm exercising my right. Period. So this is a way of thinking of rights like trump cards in the game of bridge. The the right always is going to trump or Overcome any claim of government power. That's how modern people think of these constitutional rights. Um, that's actually not how they ever were at the founding, and it's not even how they are today. All the right does is shift the burden to the government to justify what it's doing in a in a particular way. If you have a constitutional right, a recognized constitutional right, not a mere liberty interest of the kind I was mentioning before, but a recognized constitutional right, like for exercise of religion. The effect of that is not to win your case. The effect of that is to put the burden on government or shift the burden to the government to justify what it's doing as what we might say necessary and proper. So, just because what a mayor or governor has done will affect the ability of a congregation to assemble uh, in order to exercise their free or the right their, their exercise their religion, um, that doesn't mean they're going to win. What matters is whether the government has a good faith, in this case, public health justification for restricting that right, because that is within the police power of the states to do. The whole point of the police power is to protect the health and safety when people, of the public when people are exercising their liberties in such a way as to risk harm to others. That's what the police power is for. Uh, let me just tie this up to the Declaration of Independence for a minute. Maybe this will make it easier for the audience to understand what the police power is. Um, There's two sentences in the Declaration of Independence that are important to understand. One is the one that's famous. um, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are all individual rights life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. They're also natural and unalienable rights. They're rights you have before government is founded. Um, So the rights we bring to the table as individual people, they're what the ninth amendment to the constitution refers to as rights retained by the people when they form government. All right. So that's the sentence we all know. The next sentence gives the American theory of uh, the American political theory. And it says the following to secure these rights, which rights, the rights in the previous sentence, the natural rights, To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Let me say that again. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So what is the purpose of government? To secure the pre-existing rights retained by the people. Uh, These are natural rights. That's what they are. So that's what the police power is. The police power is the power of the government to secure our rights. To secure our rights from what? To secure our rights from being violated by our fellow citizens. So when I was a criminal prosecutor in Chicago, and I prosecuted murders, rapes, and armed robberies, and I chose to be a state court prosecutor rather than a federal prosecutor when I graduated from law school. Why? Because I wanted to enforce those rights. I wanted to enforce our, uh, our, the freedoms we have to be free of murder, rape, and armed robbery. Those are the core of the police power. So that's one of the things that those police power does. The other thing the police power does, so you can prohibit uh, conduct that violates rights. That's easy. Everybody agrees with that. But the other thing the police power does is it allows for regulations in advance of harming others to prevent that harm from happening in the first place. So think of, Building a building negligently, so you have a balcony railing that's built too low and somebody falls off and they get seriously hurt or they're killed by a too low balcony, well, they can sue after the fact and get damages, but that might be too late. The other thing the police power allows is a building code that would say how high that balcony railing should be before anybody falls off. That's a regulation of liberty. That's a reasonable regulation of liberty. So when you're talking about your hypothetical example or even the real example, Of uh, shutting down prayer services, you have to ask, is that a reasonable regulation of the liberty? It's not enough to say you have the liberty and the right. You do. That's what brings you into court. That's what gives you a claim. Now the government gets to say, is this a reasonable restriction on that liberty? For what purpose? The purpose of protecting the rights of others, the purpose of protecting people from this communicable disease. And that's what you then have to answer. And that's a fact-based inquiry. That is not an inquiry that's decided as a matter of first principles. Oh, I have my right, therefore I may be able to do X, period. Don't bother me with the facts. No, it's a fact-based inquiry, and what we want courts to be, to do is be realistic about these facts, not just to presume the government's right, but actually evaluate what the government says in light of real facts and figure out if this is warranted or justified or not.
1: Well, that's very helpful because it gives us some idea of how how to use your book to understand what's what our situation is right now which is very important um now that we've addressed some of the topics in the news and how your book provides as i mentioned solid grounding for us in the base the workings of american constitutional law as we scan the headlines or watch the news let's discuss the origins of the book in the acknowledgement section your co-author josh blackman said you, appro- he, they said you approached him with an idea and that morphed into this book and the wonderful online resource of charming, engaging, and substantive videos that buyers of the book can gain access to. And I I was interested, what is it about Blackman as a scholar and or innovator innovator, that appealed to you? How had you gotten acquainted originally?
2: I've known Josh since he was a law student. So I first met him when he was a law student at George Mason University um, and the head of his Federalist Society chapter there. And uh, uh, I always liked him. I, I thought he was a bit of a handful. He was extremely ambitious, uh, and uh, uh, Unlike I like you to say I don't. What's that? Unlike you, right? Yeah. Well, he was a handful for me. So, <laughs> uh, so that shows you what a handful he really is. Um, and I thought that uh, if you'd have asked me back then, is there any way that he could be a nationally prominent law professor today? I would say, well, no. That's just not in the cards because you know, people from George Mason don't go on to be famous law professors when they're young men. And uh, he has, because he is just a a force of nature. And I knew him very well. Um, We actually, you know, had a lot of contact during the health challenge to the Affordable Care Act that I was one of the lawyers about. And he, he wrote a book about that, um, which I helped, uh, you know, him edit. But here's the thing, I had a casebook in constitutional law. And the sales of that casebook were not what the sales of my contract's casebook are like. So I, w- I wanted to bring on a co-author who I thought was a real hustler who could, <laughs> uh, who could promote the book and also help make the book better. Um, and, and that's a book that's used to teach constitutional law classes. So one of the ideas he had after I brought him – so I brought him on as, as my co-author because I thought he could help promote the book and make the book more accessible, which he's done. But he had yeah, an idea. Yeah, he's
1: very skillful, though,
2: yeah. Yeah, well, he had an idea, and his idea was, let's do a video series uh, to do what's called the uh, the flip classroom, where students watch videos about the material they're going to read before they read and come to class. And that helps them understand what they read. It helps them understand what's going on in class. Let's make a series of videos. And we sold our publisher, Walters Kluwer, of our casebook, who's also the same publisher of this book, on the idea of a video series. So we were halfway through... It took us two years to do this video series, and we spent over mm-hmm. eighty hours in a private studio um, in uh, Chantilly, Virginia, over a two-year period. Um, uh, it was, you know, quite grueling, and it was all based on scripts. We, you know, Josh would write a first draft of the script, and I would revise the script, and we would go back and forth, and then we would go into the studio, and we would reach it off a teleprompter, and then Josh would do the storyboarding which brings in all the graphics and the pictures and all this stuff. He's very gifted when it comes to all this. So we're in the middle of this project, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? The only students that are only people that are going to get to watch these videos are students of professors who have picked our casebook to teach their constitutional law class. And I already told you, that's not enough professors there. (laughs) I wish there were more, but there aren't enough. So I said, we're going to be doing all this work. And how are we going to get this work in the hands of the general public? How can we get this work in the hands of other law students whose professors do not teach with our book and the general public? And then I hit upon the idea, well, let's do a book, a textbook, a freestanding paperback book about the cases that we're talking about in the videos. We'll start with our scripts, which are written down, but they're very sort of, uh, they're very, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, scripts are not all that complete, right? We start with the scripts, and then we broaden it out into a full prose book. So the book actually grew out of the video series, both as a way of expanding upon the video series, because people read, they people learn both by watching and listening, they also learn by reading, mm-hmm. and as a way of selling the video series. Because how are you going to sell a video series to the public? It's hard to do that. So if you buy the book, you get the videos with it. This is a way of selling both the book and the videos, and it's been very, very successful, as you know. Um, the sales of this book, unlike the sale of my casebook, uh, is doing really, really well. We were number one on Amazon uh, in constitutional law books for many, many weeks. We were even, um, I think, uh, in the seventh best-selling book on Amazon in all books for at least a week or two, or for at least oh, a week We touched there. So it's been very, very successful. And we're very, very, I'm very, very grateful to Josh, because I'll tell you, without him having the idea to do the videos and then without him executing this with his ability to illustrate the videos with pictures, graphics, audio clips and storyboard, the whole thing, which he did and I did not do. Um, this this whole project would not have come about.
1: Well, I know you, I've heard some some other of the interviews that you both have done, and you made the point that if I had realized what I had got uh, the enormous amount of work that was going to go into this, I would have maybe thought. That's why you, you said I would. I'm not sure I would have, but I'm I'm so glad you did. And I bought a book for a relative who teaches uh, composition using the co- the Constitution as the basis, and I think it's a wonderful. Uh, it's just a very compelling book, and uh, apropos of the the videos and how the, you you mentioned using photographs and maps and uh, photographs of the people involved and some of the places. I just want to give example of the um, video about Buck versus Bell, the famous case of the uh, the woman, and that's a very moving piece of cinema. Just aside from the constitutional issues, it's just a very touching tale you see carrie buck you see her 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 mother you see her daughter you see justice holmes you see the the home of where it was where they were confined The the home for supposedly the people minded i believe it was called and you see you see maps of of where the eugenics laws were were applied but state by state and that's really fascinating because i'm from oregon and it was interesting to see or where or, or, where Oregon stood at that time in the 1920s with with those laws compared to other states. So that's a, a I think that if people just watch that one alone is an introduction to the to the course. And many of them, by the way, you mentioned some of them are available on on YouTube for free, I believe, and people can get a taste of it if they if they just Actually, search. Them
2: all in. all of them are available in. You can watch about a minute of the, every one of them. Go to. Oh really? Yeah. Con if you go to our website conlaw.us, we give you a teaser minute or so of each video to give you a sense of what that video is about. So you can get a sample of what we're talking about production value-wise. Buck v. Bell, just to tell your audience, is, an exa- is a, was an example of a, a, a eugenics or a law, a sterilization law, that was part of the movement called eugenics. We explain all of this. Um, and and these were laws that sterilized people uh, in order to improve the, 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 uh, the gene stock of the country. That's what the eugenics was about. Uh, and it was a, it was something that was promoted by progressives primarily, or, or like they were the pr- political progressives in the day were very, very big proponents of this, but it was very popular uh, across the ideological spectrum, the political spectrum. Um, and and the idea is you would sterilize people so they couldn't have children. Um, and that would improve the, the stock of the country, the genetic pull and uh, strength of the country. Um, and Carrie Buck was a, a young woman who had probably given birth as a result of having been raped by her father, we don't know for sure, but she was accused of being promiscuous, which we believe she was not. Um, and she was and she gave birth to this baby, and then the baby was judged as also being what they called an imbecile on the basis of a silly test that they did based on the baby's recognition of a quarter or something object that was held up in front of him. And so you had the mother who was supposed to be an imbecile, the daughter who was an imbecile, and the baby was an imbecile. And then from this, you get the famous line by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. in his, in his opinion in Buck v. Bell called, when he said, three generations of imbeciles are enough, and we can sterilize it and put an end to it. This is the hero, not my hero, but the hero of, to so many other people of Oliver de wonder Holmes Jr. And we talk about that case. That's Buck Feebel. We have a whole video about that, as you mentioned.
1: Yes, uh, and it's, it's ironic that it was eugenics was all in the interest of science, and now we would consider that junk science is the term. I guess they. Well, I to... tell
2: you, if you study the history of constitutional law, uh, especially from the progressive movement forward, it, the history of, of constitutional law is the history of junk science. Is
1: mm-hmm. what
2: it is because junk science. Brain- is- Junk science is constantly being used to justify uh, uh, restrictions on liberty of the day, and it takes decades to figure, sometimes to discover that what was formerly scientific truth turns out to have been completely false.
1: Well, when you mention, when, apropos of junk science, would that include what you mentioned in the book as Brand, the Brandeis Briefs?
2: Well, yes. Um, the Brandeis Brief was innovated by Louis Brandeis when he was an, uh, an, act, an activist lawyer before he was a justice. Um, And well, he he filed a brief which was quite unconventional in the at the time, and that was a brief uh, uh, that that marshaled social science uh, and supposedly empirical research to tell to justify legislation. Because that gets back to the beginning of our our discussion here. Remember, the issue is deference, right, and whether the whether the legislature can justify what it's doing. Well, up and before the modern era, the legislature for a period of 50 60 70 years the legislature had to justify what it was doing as rational remember i said that and so if they didn't justify what they were doing as rational the legisl- then the liberty are the liberty of the people would prevail over the restrictions that were posed by the legislature what a brandeis brief was there for was innovated is it provided a court social science supposedly science science uh, evidence to ch- support the reasonableness of the legislation. It was there to meet the state's burden. But the early Brandeis briefs were junk science. Uh, they worked. They, got, they upheld the law. The law that, was, that Brandeis first filed his famous brief in was a law that it was a case that we talk about um, uh, in, the, in 100 Supreme Court cases, uh, and that's a case involving the maximum hours law for women, that women were only allowed to work certain number of hours, and it was supposed to be for their own safety. And there, this violated the general background liberty of freedom of contract of everybody, including the freedom of contract of women. Um, uh, and so Brandeis filed a brief on behalf of this maximum hours law saying how uh, women's physical structure, based on scientific proof that women's physical structure was weaker, more dainty, more fair, uh, they, their blood was thinner, that's the other scientific uh, fact. And for all these reasons, they couldn't work as hard. And if they were allowed to work as hard, it would also affect the 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 uh, the breed uh, the um, their ability to breed, uh, their ability to have children. Because again, this goes back to genetics, the genet the eugenics movement. So they would because they are re- we rely on women to give birth to healthy babies. We can't let them work so much. And after reading this brief, the Supreme Court upheld the law. So hooray! You know the Supreme Court has now been realistic. They've le- read the- read this brief. Uh, now, the irony here is that when law students are taught about the Brandeis brief, they're taught that this is a great, the concept is great because it brings scientific evidence to the court rather than relying on abstract rights and things like that. Uh, but in fact, the history of, as I've already mentioned, the history of modern Supreme Court doctrine is a history of relying on junk science like this.
1: Well, following up on that, I'd like to, uh, There seems to me an irony that you mentioned the case of uh, Williamson Optical.
2: Yeah, William really Optical, right?
1: And I'd like to ask about that because, interestingly, it seems that William O. Douglas, who was another progressive, turned the Brandeis brief idea on its head. that in the in economics related related cases, that Douglas seemed to say, "Oh, evidence doesn't matter at all." So well, I don't, I don't, I'm, yeah. I don't even want to hear it. So- well,
2: as we as we describe in the video series, this this took place in three phases. So in the first phase. The government had to justify what it was doing, and the Brandeis brief helped justify legislation. Then Louis Brandeis goes on the Supreme Court, and in 1931, the second phase begins. And in a case that decided by Brandeis himself, or he wrote the opinion, he said the burden is we're going to presume that the legislature is justified here. We're not going to; they don't have to present a, a brief, but we're but we are going to allow. Challengers to the law to present a Brandeis brief. So now, instead of the government, instead of there needing to be a brief on behalf of the legislation for the legislature, now anybody who challenges a law has to have their own brief that rebuts the reasonableness of what the legislature does. And that's the way matters stood, at least as a matter of doctrine, from 1931 to 1955. And in 1955, in Williamson v. Lee Optical, the third phase, the phase we're currently living with in um, with some modification, but the phase we're currently living in basically said, as you just said, wait a second, you're not even going to be allowed to bring evidence into court to rebut what the government is doing. We're just going to presume what the government's doing is right, and we're not going to hear evidence about it. Because the lower court in williamson v. Optical took evidence on the reasonableness of that law. What was that law? That law was a law, uh, it did an, it was a law that, reg- it was, Lee Optical Company. The Lee Optical Company was an interstate company, very much like operating in a business model that we now associate with lens crafters, where Mm -hmm. you have a store, you go to the store, and you can bring your prescription into the store, or you can can bring your glasses into the store. They'll put it in a in a device called the lensometer, figure out what your prescription is, and they'll make you another set of glasses. Well, that got outlawed in the state of Oklahoma. Why? Well, probably, probably (laughs) because the ophthalmologist and the optometrist um, lost business that way because the, the, what the law said is you can't get another set of glasses unless you go back to your ophthalmologist or go back to your optometrist and get another prescription from them. And Back in the day when I was a kid, when 1955, I was like three years old, but when I was a kid, we, we bought our glasses from the ophthalmologist. That's where you got your... You didn't go to the store. You got mm-hmm. your glasses from your doctor. Well, this Lee Optical challenged their economic, you know, their e- their you know their their livelihoods or their their income stream, and the legislature put Lee Optical out of business with this law. Well, the lower court took evidence. They said, "Do you really need to have a doctor to use a lensometer and measure the le- the, uh, the 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 the." The, what prescription is? They said, "Look, if you go to the opth- ophthalmologist's office, the ophthalmologist doesn't use the lensometer. Uh, a, a person working in his office does. So, if you don't even need a doctor to run the opt- the lensometer in the doctor's office, why do you need one here?" And they basically decided that the law was not rational. This and other provisions: there's no advertising. You couldn't have a doctor on the previs- premises to give you an eye exam. They're basically outlawing what we today think of as lens crafters. Mm. And so, after this. Um, they, the challengers win in the lower court. Interestingly, in those days, it doesn't happen anymore. There was what they call the three-judge panel law. It was an act of Congress. And before any law could be declared unconstitutional, it had to be done in front of a panel of three judges, which I think is actually a really good idea. We don't have that anymore except in rare cases. And so the three judges had a hearing. They had evidence. And they said, this law is un- un- unreasonable. We invalidate it. It's unconstitutional. It goes to the Supreme Court, and William O. Douglas, a political progressive, as you note, uh, a new dealer, somebody who was in the Roosevelt administration before he was picked by Franklin Roosevelt to be on the Supreme Court, he adopts this irrebuttable presumption of constitutionality, this conceivable basis test, which says all that matters is whether we as a court can imagine a reason why the legislature might have done this. And he started making up reasons, making up reasons. And that was good enough. And it reversed the lower court. And after that, you couldn't get a hearing like you could get before 1955.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it,, <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level. Today, that's Shopify.com/system.
1: Douglas seemed to be prone to making things up, as we know in uh, Griswold versus Connecticut. Oh, there's a penumbra and there's <laughs> emanations. Yeah, we uh,
2: talk, we explain the difference between a penumbra and an emanation in our videos. We actually <laughs> have we have a graphic. Josh put this graphic together to explain the difference between an emanation and a penumbra because I actually always get this mixed up myself. But now it's hard for me to. I I should also mention to everybody. I watch these videos before I teach that material. I watch these videos before I reread the material. I reread everything I assign my students. But before I reread it, I watch the videos. And then I read it, and then I go to class. And I can talk about what's in the videos because I've watched them again, and they help me prepare for class.
1: Well I imagine is it is I haven't seen that particular video. Is it sort of a lighthearted
2: Yes, uh, it's a little period. lighthearted. It's in oh, the Williamson Veely Optical video. You can look at no no, it's I in the Griswold, be- it's in the Griswold versus, versus Connecticut
1: video. Oh good. Well I have been spending so much time with the book that I have explored the videos only 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 a few of them so far, but I'm very much looking forward to them. But I look forward to that because apropos it gives me a good a good segue to the fact that not only is the book moving in many ways and, and, and compelling of the, some of the stories, the personal stories of of the people who were involved in the cases. Sometimes it's quite funny. And I'd like to, because you were mentioning that one, I'd like to mention another one that in the opening of chapter 53, when is conduct speech? It reads, the three chapters, the three cases in this chapter share one trait, something gets burned. As in burned with a match. And that's a witty way to lead into some serious issues. And I, I won't give away what those three things that are burned are. Oh, would you on. believe Oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, no, oh, well I, if you want me to say what I else, I'll say. I didn't want to, to, I want them to buy the book. So yeah, I, I think that
2: will tell you something, because these are the three, one of the three most famous cases um, okay, please uh, go, in, on please this go issue. Go. you got the please burning of a draft. you got the burning of a draft card. Okay. The guy's conviction is upheld. you got the burning of an American flag. Mm-hmm. The guy's conviction is reversed, and you got the burning of a cross on yeah. somebody's lawn, and yeah. that conviction is reversed. So in all three cases, it just so happened it worked out that way. All these three, these three key cases to figure out when is conduct, speech— uh, that can be protected by the first amendment, they all involve burning something. That was my line, I have to say, that was my line before I Josh. Liked it. Came I laughed
1: out loud at that line. I thought that was funny. I mean it was it was true too. I mean it was it was it was a funny line, but it's actually correct about what, so, what makes these cases distinctive.
2: And yeah so let, let me say what, you know, so what let, just since you bring it up, let me just, you know, the audience doesn't realize that you know in the case of burning a draft card, burning the flag, or burning a cross Nobody says anything. There is no speech. Nobody says anything.
1: That's a very good point.
2: So that's what these cases are about. Under what circumstances can conduct doing something, in this case, setting something on fire, in what cases does conduct become protected by the First Amendment's freedom of speech? And these cases Mm -hmm. address that question in the context of three different objects that get burned.
1: Well, I think I think that's it's a really that chapter alone is worth the price of admission to the book. Uh, uh, speaking of the cases and your, how you and, and Josh determined the rationale, uh, I was somewhat surprised as a reader what what were what did not get its own chapter because because you refer to many that were just the cases that were. Uh, in, um, tremendously important, but did not make the cut. So I'd like to talk to you about some of some of the reasons that you chose what what did or did not make it into the book sure. as, as one of the cases. And one of them is uh, the case of Washington v- versus Glucks. Is it pronounced Gluck's- Gluck's- Burg- Gluck'sburg, Glucksburg? Glucksburg, yeah, nineteen ninety seven. And right. what, was did you con- how did, how was it that that's not one of the golden one hundred? I'll call them. Um.
2: Huh. I, first of all, I you know I know I know you were going to ask me that question. I don't specific, <laughs> I, I I I don't specifically remember why we decided to mention that case in passing uh, rather than put it into the video. I think that was Josh's decision to do it, so that's why I don't really remember it. Uh, but we talk a lot about Glucksburg. There are other cases we don't even talk about, and people ask us why those cases aren't in. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but look, it's only 100 cases. So yeah. <laughs> I guess the question always is, how do we decide on this being our 100 cases? And, mm-hmm. it, and, 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 and then the question usually is, well, what did you leave out, and whether it, was, whether it was hard, and what was the 101st case you didn't put in? But that's not the way we we figured out what cases to go in. We were trying to identify, as you said in the setup, the canon and the anti-canon. What are the most canonical cases—the cases that every lawyer should know about—that are basically covered in every constitutional law class? Um, what are the—and then what are the—and uh, and they're covered because they're supposed to be good cases. And then the anti-canon are the cases that are covered because they're supposed to be bad cases. So, let, an example of a good case is Brown versus Board of Education: Segregated schools are unconstitutional. Example of a bad case is Dred Scott. Uh, which which upheld uh, the right of um, individuals to own slaves in some respects, um, or and it, and it invalidated the Missouri Compromise or, or Plessy versus Ferguson, which upheld separate but equal. Those are that's in the anti canon. Famous cases, famous for being wrong. Um, we the casebook that that we were initially making these videos for is based on the idea that the way people learn how to practice law at best. And the way they practice law is by knowing all the good cases and all the bad cases and knowing which are the good cases, which are the bad ones, why are the, and and this is a book about why the good cases are thought to be good, even if they're not always good and why the bad cases are thought to be bad, even though they're not always bad. And that's what we're trying to teach. And so when you, when we lined up all the cases that we thought we ought to put into this video series, and then we started shooting the video series and then we decided to make a case, a, a book about it. Like I said before, it turns out we had about a hundred. So that made a good title for the book. It's not like we started with 150 and we whittled ourselves down to a hundred. It's like we started, I think when we actually did the formal count, we had 103. So we well, that, that's like a hundred. So we'll call it a hundred, call it an even hundred.
1: Well, uh- it, it works. It works for me. And what, one one of the things that I want to emphasize to readers, too, is that it's some of the, the, the fact that they're it's not dumbed down, but it's also very approachable. Some of them are just three or four pages and you just it's such an easy way to cover a vast amount of material in a very efficient manner and uh, because you think well this case i'm say i'm not interested in dred scott i'm going to skip ahead to this particular but 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 it's there if you want it and you can read in detail about whatever your subject is it's well organized in terms of if you're a free speech uh, aficionado if you're a religious liberty person or or just or you're an american history wants to read every american history person wants the full panoply of our of our history it's all there yeah uh,
2: 63 chapters correspond to the 63 videos. And so the videos are 5 to 15 minutes. And so the chapters have the requisite number of pages to cover 5 to 15 minutes worth of material.
1: Well, getting back to the to the question of of the law students, at what point did you realize this is actually a good resource for the, for the general public?
2: Um, as soon as we started watching the videos.
1: Oh, okay, then- right.
2: I mean, it was set up for law students. But remember, I say it's law students, but that shouldn't intimidate anybody. It's set up to show videos to law students before they read the material. So they're, when before a law student reads the material, they're just basically a smart student. They mm-hmm. don't really know anything until they've read it. So we are, these are videos they're supposed to watch before they read the material. And then by reading the material, they become more adept at reading cases so that they become lawyers. But yeah, so this so it turns out that watching the same videos that law students would watch before they go to they they read the material is really really good for college students for high school students and for the general public. They can they can get this stuff too. You don't have to go to law school to be a smart person.
1: No, I was going to mention that and I was going to mention the fact that Given our horrible economic situation at this point, many people are out of the job and many of them are, are kind of reevaluating what they want to do when this horrible situation is all over. I think many people are going to realize, you know, I've always considered I wanted maybe I should go to law school. And I think this is an ideal launching pad for them or, or, or maybe evaluation, personal evaluation tool to, to to read the book and to think, do I understand this material? Can I grasp this material? Can I handle this material? And do I have a vocation to be a lawyer? And one of the things that, that I found very helpful that, that deterred me from going to law school as a young person was the 14th Amendment was just a complete mystery to me. I just couldn't grasp it. It seemed so abstruse and so so uh, vague, I mean, not, not just very arcane, and I just couldn't understand how to apply it. And the book does a marvelous job with the 14th Amendment, which, which made me want to ask you, the, I never realized... How key the Fourteenth Amendment is <laughs> to American law, and I almost wanted to say it's like this: this, this, the supporting actor who threatens to take over your whole book. And I wonder, I want to joke with you. Do do you lie in bed or do you dream about the Fourteenth Amendment?
2: Well, uh, it, it will not surprise you to know that I am in finishing up a new book on the Fourteenth Amendment. That's oh, my wonderful. next book.
1: Oh, I hope it's, you'll be I hope you'll call us back and we'll have you on again. I'd love it.
2: It's called The Original Meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment. I'm writing it with a different co-author, a very, very, very bright young guy named Evan Bernick. And we've been writing we've been writing about the Fourteenth Amendment for the last couple of years and um, we're getting our manuscript in shape where we can submit to publishers. It's very you know, all the chapters exist. He's working on some of the footnotes now. Um, we wish we just re we just finished, finalized the introduction, which you kind of write after you see how the whole thing comes out. Um, and, uh, we're almost done with this and it is, you're absolutely right. The 14th amendment is the key to most of modern const much of modern constitutional law. Most people are not aware of it. They're certainly not aware of the fact that it has been butchered by the Supreme court starting five years after Uh, it was enacted in 1868 in a case called the slaughterhouse cases in 1873. And we have a video about that as well. Um, and as a result, we've been working with a partial 14th amendment and what the Supreme court did to compensate for the fact that they have cut pieces out of it is they've expanded other pieces beyond where they should go to make up for the fact that there's missing pieces. And so it's kind of a big mess. Um, Uh, And so uh, we our book is called the new book is called the original meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment, and it explains both what every each of these provisions was supposed to mean, what they did mean when they were enacted, and how uh, courts should put them into effect today. Because some of the reasons why courts shy away from giving the original meaning its its legal effect is because they don't know how to do it; they're afraid of how to do it. And so we explain how that's but that's the new book. That's not this book. But as you say. In this book Josh and I do cover much of this material because I've been thinking about the 14th amendment for, you know, 15 or 20 years and much of what became the foundation of the new book uh, is previewed in this book.
1: Well, I'd like to ask that because I have a question here that I was going to ask later in the interview but I'll I guess I'll ask it now and in the book and you can you're the expert so you can tell me if I'm if this follows up on what you've just been saying about the 14th amendment you write Slaughterhouse, Bradwell, and Crookshank effectively effectively eliminated the Privileges or Immunities Clause from the Constitution. What were the implications of this, and is that the orthodox view, and does that, t- does that tie into the 14th Amendment?
2: Absolutely, and half of our book, of uh, the new book, is about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Why? Because it was eliminated from the Constitution by the Supreme Court in 1873. Five years after the the 14th Amendment was adopted. So let's say what tell everybody what the privilege or immunities clause says. It says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Let me say that again. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, if you came down from Mars and somebody was explaining the cons- and gave you a copy of the constitution and you came across that sentence no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United states you would think well that's pretty darn important that's got that's like ball game that's a big deal well guess what work that clause does in modern constitutional law nothing nowhere nothing it's only been used since the, since it was adopted in 1868 to today in 2020 it's only been used once with approval by the Supreme Court in a, in a case that involved the right to travel. So you have a right to travel from one state to another. That The court did cite the Privileges or Immunities Clause in support of that right, that unenumerated right. That, that's one. And then in the in the case of McDonald v. City of Chicago, hmm. which involved whether the right to keep and bear arms would be applied to the states, not just the federal government, um, eight justices... Discussed the due process of law clause, the due process clause, four in dissent, four in the majority, and one justice, the key fifth vote, Justice Thomas. He based his concurring opinion on the privileges or immunities clause. So the clause did do some work for the to get the fifth vote in McDonald, saying that right to keep and bear arms does apply to the states. So yes, in Slaughterhouse, Crookshank, and the civil rights cases, uh, that clause gets eliminated from the Constitution, and that ought to shock people. That ought to shock the listeners to this podcast, that a whole yeah, clause of the Constitution just... gets eliminated. And so let well, me no, say we're... one more thing that I want I, – it was a point I wanted to make earlier, and this is the perfect time to make it. This is a book about constitutional law. Constitutional law is not the same thing as the Constitution. What's the difference? Well, the Constitution has a privileges or immunities clause in it, but constitutional law does not have a privileges or immunities clause in it. Constitutional law is the law the Supreme Court makes to implement what the Constitution says. And that constitutional law can be faithful to the text of the Constitution or it can be unfaithful to the text of the Constitution. And in the case of the slaughterhouse cases, the general academic consensus is that the Supreme Court was being very, very unfaithful to the 14th Amendment by eliminating the privileges or immunities clause. So there is a consensus among constitutional law professors that that's true. But here's the problem. There is no consensus about what the clause actually means and how you should use it if you were going to use it. That's what's stopping courts from using it, in part, because there's no consensus on what are the privileges or immunities and what should we do with them. That's what the new book is about. Half the book is about what are the privileges or immunities and what should we do with them.
1: Well, yeah, it was when I read that sentence, against Slaughterhouse, Bradwell, and Cruikshank, effectively eliminated the privileges or immunity, immunities clause from the Constitution. I, I got my pen. My pen was just flying because I was underlining that. thing. That's a pretty amazing concept. I was and really. I really
2: undeni- undeniably true. There is no constitutional law professor in the country who would deny that proposition.
1: Well, that's very helpful to listeners and to me, <laughs> to everyone, to every reader. Um uh, getting back to establishing uh, you, uh, the fact that there's a there were, you, we talked about the fact that some of these cases are anti-canonical and in the, one of the videos, what, what Josh mentions what he's what you're attempting to do both of you with the book and the videos. He he cites sev- four considerate four factor four hopes or aims of the book. I should say aims of the book and the videos: clarity, context, consideration, the canon. And I'd like to ask, in terms of the canon and anti-canonical, is there a liberal canon, a libertarian canon, and a conservative canon? Does everyone does everyone basically agree on the canon? I mean, has there been any any negative reviews of your book that say, well, that's not that's not really the the correct one or, hundred, or or any quibbling
2: about it? This is this is a great question. This is a great question. Um, there is, there is no – that we have gotten zero criticism about our case selection. In fact, we've been endorsed by scholars and professors from a variety of different into, uh, ideological perspectives. You can read all those endorsements on our Amazon page. Hmm. Uh, I assume they're also on conlaw.us. Erwin Shimarinsky, one of the mainstream progressive law professors in the country, uh, who has a very successful casebook, wrote the foreword for our book. So we've been complimented on our selection of cases. Why? Because what we are trying to do is describe the canon. What is the canon? The canon are cases that are generally accepted to be good. And the anti-canon are cases that are generally accepted to be bad. So we're trying to figure out general acceptance. And we do that by, you know, surveying other casebooks and just knowing what the conventional wisdom is. So ours is a book of, we're trying to stay within um, our lane here of just describing to students what are the cases that are said to be the good cases? What are cases that are said to be the bad cases? Now, along the way, we sometimes give our opinions about how some of the cases that are said to be the good cases really aren't so good. Like that women's, uh, women's uh, uh, maximum hours law case, that's, a good, that's considered a good case in the canon. That it was good for the Supreme Court to uphold the maximum hours law. Well, we think we show a little bit about why maybe it shouldn't be good. And as for the anti-canon, there's a famous case called Lochner v. New York, which struck down a maximum hours law for bakers. And that's considered to be an anti-canonical case. That was considered to be a bad case. Left and right both think that's a bad case. Lochner v. New York. Libertarians like it, but mostly left and right don't like it. Um, we teach that as an anti-canonical case. We know that we're, that's, how we, that's our mission. But we give enough factual background for students and other readers to say, I don't understand what's so bad about that case. That, that case doesn't seem bad to me. In fact, that case seems pretty reasonable. But that's an opinion people are entitled to have about what's in the canon and what's not in the canon. But what's in the canon and what's not in the canon, that's a matter of fact. And that we try to describe those facts as that fact as accurately as possible.
1: Well, in terms of the anti-canon, there and speak, you were mentioning uh, bad, bad um, very sexist attitudes of the past towards women. There is a case also that you mentioned that does make the one hundred and I don't remember the name, but it's, it's the case of the woman who wanted to be a member of the 19th century, mid late 19th century, wanted to be a lawyer in Illinois, I believe. Well,
2: that's actually Bradwell. And that was okay. that case, that, that you mentioned that case and Bradwell was decided that there was not the decision was announced the day after slaughterhouse again in 1873. So on that day in 1873, uh, the day before and that day, uh, basically the Supreme court gutted the, the privilege of immunity clause in, in slaughterhouse, mm-hmm. they said, uh, Butchers, people who are practicing the craft of butcher, butch, being a butcher in New Orleans, they do not have a fundamental right to pursue their their lawful occupation of butchers, but being a butcher. Um, that's what they. That was not a that was not a privilege or immunity of citizens of the United States. That's what they said on one day. The next day, they said the same thing about the right to practice law um, in Illinois. <clears throat> there, there is no there is no privilege the right to practice law is not a privilege or immunity of citizens of the United States. Therefore, the white male butchers in Louis- in New Orleans could not challenge a Louisiana statute creating a monopoly uh, slaughterhouse. And the next day they said, and a woman, um, uh, Myra Bradwell, could not challenge a law restricting women from practicing, preventing women from practicing law in Illinois. Why? In both cases, the same reason. There is no there is no privilege or immunity citizens of citizens United States protected by the Fourteenth Amendment here. Therefore, go away.
1: Well, that is very helpful because I think that that leads me to the question of who should what what particular interests people have in this case. I think scholars of women's studies could benefit from reading the book because there is a lot about women's rights and reproductive rights and and the simple ability to practice law for for women and 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 in terms of other faculty. Uh, I think that the book. I mean, I hear I'm telling you who the the audience is, but this is what struck me as I was reading it. I think teachers at historical black colleges and those at religious schools should consider adopting it as a text because there's so much material about civil rights and religious freedom cases beyond what people are are taught in high school civics classes. That there and, are, and, you know,
2: and slavery. I hope yeah. we have we have a whole video on slavery. Slavery is uh, and and our case both our case book and this book. Uh, do not sugarcoat slavery at all because you can't really understand either the text of the Constitution originally <clears throat> or the text of the amendments that came uh, uh, after Recon- during Reconstruction or <clears throat> how that text got m- mutilated and redacted or eliminated because of the rise of Jim Crow and racism in the country. You really can't understand constitutional law unless you take slavery into account. The existence of slavery in the beginning. The abolition of slavery after the Civil War and the revival of slavery in everything but name or most of the as much as they could come close to slavery using Jim Crow laws up until the 1960s. And so it's impossible to understand constitutional law without coming to grips with slavery.
1: Well, absolutely, because when I was reading the book as a as a you know, middle upper middle class white woman, I was struck by reading how much constitutional law related jurisprudence is related to all Americans and not just African Americans, is nevertheless derived from the struggles of the African American community. Yes. I was really I didn't and, and you discussed and we discussed the United States versus Cruikshank and uh, that so you just addressed that as very helpful. Yeah, United um, States like,
2: versus Cruikshank involved um, a massacre of African Americans, um, in, uh, Louisiana, um, in which I think between 80 and a hundred African Americans were shot to death. Um, uh, they were militiamen and they were in contest over an election that happened in Colfax County. It was called the Colfax, uh, uh the cor- the Colfax courthouse massacre. Um, and it was, it was a grotesque uh, event that made national news. Um, a very heroic, uh, U S attorney, white U S attorney named, uh, Beckwith, in New Orleans, managed to get some of these people indicted. Uh, first, there was a hung jury for the first trial. Then he got some of them convicted under a new civil rights law that the Republicans in Congress had enacted to get to the Supreme Court um, and eventually be told that the, uh, um, the, the, uh, uh, the in the Crookshank case, that the, that the statute that Congress had passed, uh, that the, that the indictment that he had brought was not properly crafted um, and that, in, and ultimately, the statute was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. It is a horrible, horrible um, uh, incident. In fact, I can recommend another book, not written by me, but written by a man named Charles Lane, who's on the editorial board of The Washington Post. He wrote this book.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I follow Georgetown, him on Twitter. At, and I, yeah, or yes. used to. I think he stopped being on Twitter, actually.
2: Yeah, yeah he may have. I haven't seen him lately myself. But yeah. he's a great guy. He wrote a book. In fact, when I heard him, he was writing the book. I said, why don't you come to Georgetown Law and write the book? in our library which he did and it's called the day that freedom died and it's the story of the Koufax uh, ma- uh, county massacre the courthouse Corfo- the courthouse massacre
1: yeah and that was uh, just published in the last year or two right or
2: no actually it's it's a little older than that, so
1: that
2: quite a few well, older right. he has a
1: another great, book that's more recent yeah
2: but it's a great read it's a great read it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a disturbing read but mm. you know it gets back to your earlier point that um, a whole lot of our constitutional law has been influenced by the, the plight of African Americans from the founding to today.
1: Well, yeah, I'd like to. If you you mentioned the Crookshank case very in in good detail there, and i I'd want to I wanted to ask if you could elaborate because I think it's fascinating because even though it's it, it's, it when you think well this is a civil rights case and so forth because it involved African Americans in the 19th century, but really it was about a their I believe a their right to assemble and b their right to bear arms where the some of the issues at, at, that were under discussion is that correct?
2: Oh sure, yeah. I mean, they were militiamen training, um, and they had weapons, and 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 that was one of the constitutional rights that these private citizens, uh, who are the other the, the rival militiamen, who are Civil War veterans of the of the Confederacy, um, it, it's a it's a it's a heartbreaking story. I, I hate to spend too much time on it. It is covered by the video uh, for chapter twenty eight, where we cover Slaughterhouse, Bradwell, and Crookshank all in the same video. Um, so Slaughterhouse is the white uh, New Orleans butchers, uh, Bradwell is, is, is Myra Bradwell suing to, uh, uh be able to practice law in the state of Illinois. And Crookshank is about the Koufax County, uh, massacre. Um, and there, and the, and the fact that these, uh, black militiamen were slaughtered when they, after they surrendered. I mean, there was a fight. There was a, there was, they, there was a, uh, an armed conflict between these two militia groups um and then the the whites eventually set fire to the courthouse um and so they came the blacks came out under a white flag they surrendered under a white flag and it was at that point that the women and children were allowed to go and then they just executed the men they brought they just marched them down single file to the river and just shot them in the head
1: shocking um, well, to relate to, continue on the theme of African-Americans and now to move to another case in your book that, that again, that, that it's connected to African-Americans, but really it's a free speech case, which is kind of inter- interesting, um, mixture of the two, um, issues. One of them is RAV versus city of St. Paul. And I'd like you to discuss if you can, the case, but also how the, it was basically what now would be considered, considered hate speech. and can you discuss how the climate has changed since that time with hate speech versus free speech, and and the, the increasing debate about when or when again when when conduct is is speech? But you use the concept over breadth, and I wonder, I, could you discuss over breadth? And is there is there is is that is that going to be able to hold this ground in the age of safe spaces and precious snowflakes?
2: Well, uh, I hope. I, I, I hate to tell you this, but if we're go- if we're going to go through each one of the issues
1: oh, okay. <laughs> of interest
2: raised in this book, we're never going to end this uh, video, oh, okay. this, this audio it. podcast.
1: Okay, so. I'll go, I'll, go, I'll move on ahead then. Um, in in your In your book, you say Lopez sent a shockwave through the legal academy. What was the case involved? If you don't, if if you have time for this, what was earth shaking about Lopez?
2: Um, you know, once again, I mean, this is a very important case. Um, uh, it's a very interesting case, but I'm going to have to beg off because uh, I, I just think that this is a wonderful thing that you're asking me about all these cases. This is exactly why you've got to get the book. You've already got the book, so you know this is true. But but we can't we can't preview the whole book to your no, audience. That's, true, that's, true, by that's going, true. Interesting. Hopefully, all the cases we've picked are interesting, and if they aren't actually interesting. We've made them seem like they're interesting, so you don't know any better. So they might actually be boring cases, but we've made them interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, they're not. They're not. I'm just kidding. But the but the idea here is that this is it's it's. I, I'm so encouraged by your response because it just shows our book has worked. Um, well, and uh, but nice. I think I'm going to demur, as we lawyers sometimes say. I'm going to demur from you know going through uh, all the cases or really any more of the cases, and just say these are great questions. These are great cases. Buy the book, watch the videos. You'll see why Hope is so interested in these things.
1: <laughs> could I could I ask one one more question about, about sure. speech? Um, you discuss in the, some of the cases involving money as speech. And given that Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg and even Bernie Sanders burned through a huge amount of money, but now the underfinanced Joe Biden is actually the nominee, do you think that campaign finance law is going to is is a lot of the case? Is a lot of the the issue of of Supreme Court weighing in on that matter sort of irrelevant at this point?
2: Um, well, campaign finance laws are very very onerous, and they're statutes, and they're not going away. The Supreme Court has invalidated parts of them, and they've upheld other parts of them. I wish they had been validated the whole thing, and so we're kind of stuck with them for now, and I for the indefinite future. Uh, but what the phenomena you've just talked about is a good example of why. Uh, these laws, which were passed in the wake of Watergate um, and and the abuses uh, that the Nixon that, that President Nixon's reelection campaign had engaged in, uh, have probably done a whole lot more harm than good. Um, the, uh, the other underfinanced candidate that recently won election is Donald Trump. Um, uh, you know, he was quite underfinanced as compared with his opposition, um, and even though he's a wealthy man um, he didn't spend very much money. And that that was one of the reasons why I really thought he was going to lose because I was told it mattered how much money you spent. Well, he didn't spend very much money. He won anyway. So I do think the role of money in, in, in elections is great, is vastly overstated. Money is very important, which is one reason why you ought to be able to raise it in a variety of different ways that the law prevents because that you need money to get your message out, uh, and to get people to know you. If you don't have a good message and if people don't like you, once they've gotten to know you, um, then you're not going to do very well no matter how much money you have. So money is important, but it's a means to an end. And the end is the electorate you know, getting to figure out whether they know you and like you and whether they agree with you. Um, and money's, money can't fix that. And there is a myth that basically says, oh, you can buy an election. I'm not saying that never happens. Of course, it can happen if you get totally, if you totally overwhelm the other, the other party, but by and large, um, uh, uh we, the history is replete, uh, with people have spent small fortunes. And in the case of Michael Bloomberg, large fortunes trying to seek a nomination and, and, and a, being able to secure the electoral uh, vote, the, the convention votes of, I guess, American Samoa is what he was able to get yes. from all these <laughs> millions of yeah. dollars.
1: Well, um, given that I'm, 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 I shouldn't rehash the book, uh, the, the cases that you, that you have addressed in the book, I, I wonder if you have time for a few more questions about where we are now. Sure. Okay. Um, for example, you, you, you use a term in the book very helpfully, the, the term suspect classification. classifications. And I'd like to ask, are we going to see more of them in coming years, for example, say gender identity?
2: Um, I think it's on, I think the direction we're on, it's very unlikely. I mean, one of the, it it does seem pretty obvious to practitioners, to law law professors, to, and constitutional law uh, lawyers, that the Supreme Court, the majority of the Supreme Court is very uh, 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 hesitant, reluctant to identify any more suspect classifications. Uh, We didn't talk anything about equal protection clause, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're really out of our time here. Uh, But the it, i said that you don't get judicial scrutiny you don't get uh, uh you you you, you w- unless you have a fundamental right i said that earlier it's all s- suspect classifications is the way you get scrutiny uh under the equal protection clause now uh you don't get scrutiny under the equal protection Clause unless you're a suspect in a you, unless you a suspect classification is being used suspect classification includes race uh, uh sex um uh, national origin, religion, religious affiliation—these are suspect classifications. But this—the court has been really, really, and it's basically race and sex to be. That's really what it boils down to. And and it took, a, and it was Justice Ginsburg was instrumental in getting sex when she was a lawyer, getting sex to be recognized as a suspect classification. Uh, but the court has been pretty ob- clear that they do not want to recognize any more. Um, and the gay rights cases that we talk about, the case of Lawrence v. Texas um, and uh, Goodrich and also Obergefell, these are cases that were decided without finding a suspect classifications, without finding sexual orientation to be a suspect classification, using, going back to the beginning of this this uh, podcast, rational basis scrutiny, but real rational basis scrutiny, the old-fashioned rational basis scrutiny, not the newfangled conceivable basis scrutiny. That's what Justice Kennedy decided to do, and he got around the need for a suspect class because he was able to give some teeth to rational- rationality review that I said rationality review ought to have, but generally speaking does not have. So that's kind of the secret to those series of cases. No suspect class, but real rationality review, and that got you a favorable outcome for, uh, for gay rights.
1: Well, what I just want to say, I know you're you're you need to go. I wanted to say one uh, useful, especially useful um, aspect of your book is is again connecting it to how the Constitution affects everyday life. And I think that given that the the court has got a case before it, I believe this year about the concept of undue burden. And I just want to say that your discussion of Planned Parenthood versus Casey is very helpful to understand that whole concept.
2: Yes, yes. Um, so it's it's what yeah 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 look. When you take constitutional law, in our case book, our book covers both two courses in constitutional law that are either taught over a year or taught separately. Constitutional law one, which is about structure, that's the first half of our book, and constitutional law two, which is about rights, that's the second half of the book. Uh, We cover all of that stuff. You can only imagine, I mean, your audience can only imagine how many different doctrines we have to cover in our 63 chapters uh, to try to cover the basics of all of this material that law students r- learn about, uh, but that anybody, even a member of the general public, can know about if they'll just watch these videos and read this book.
1: Well, with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Randy E. Barnett, who is a co-author, along with Josh Blackman, of the book An In Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, Randy. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.